Coming up on Tech Nation, what do Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and Richard Branson all have in common? They've all started spaceflight companies. Today, I speak with New Yorker writer Nicholas Schmidl, the author of Test Gods, Virgin Galactic, and the Making of a Modern Astronaut. Then, 40% of Americans report that they've gained weight since the COVID pandemic began. We'll air excerpts from a past interview with Dr. Sandra Amet, the former editor-in-chief of Nature Neuroscience. Her TED Talk, Why Dieting Doesn't Usually Work, has received over 4 million views. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2013, I spoke with New York Times journalist Margulite Fox about her book, The Riddle of the Labyrinth, The Quest to Crack an Ancient Code. Let me set the scene. It was a beautiful spring day in 1900, a beautiful spring day, much like this one today. And on that day, at Knossos in the wild countryside of northern Crete near Heraklion, the great English archaeologist Sir Arthur Evans embarked on a dig, a dig that was to last him the rest of his life. And what he unearthed there was one of the greatest archaeological finds of all time, a vast, sprawling, Bronze Age Palace, bigger than Buckingham Palace. It spanned some six acres, filled with the ruins of what had once been grand staircases, ornate murals in brilliant colors, uh, a sophisticated hydraulic system that included Bronze Age indoor plumbing, bubbling fountains, and much, much more. But what Arthur Evans found, which is what he had gone to Crete to look for, through all of these treasures into the shade. He found writing. He found cache after cache of clay tablets inscribed in wet clay by palace scribes in about 1400 BC, the height of the Bronze Age, that were the archival records of this previously unknown European civilization. The tablets were inscribed in a beautiful, bewildering, curious script that was like no writing ever seen. It was filled with little hieroglyphics uh, that looked like pots and pans, men and women, uh, horses' heads, swords, chariots, deers' heads, uh, you name it, and symbols that looked like nothing in this world. Evans named the script Linear B, and as my book, The Riddle of the Labyrinth, describes, Linear B would become one of the most tantalizing and also one of the most formidable intellectual puzzles in the history of mankind. Because not only did no one know what these Linear B tablets said, no one even knew what language they were written in. It could have been any one of a number of things back in the Aegean Bronze Age. And so they had a decipherer's most challenging situation. 
an unknown language written in an unknown script. It is the linguistic equivalent of a locked room mystery in a detective novel. Now, let's just start with the tablets, though. You were saying they were written on wet clay. It was actually some happenstance of apparent great destruction that actually led to the tablet's preservation. That's right, and as Sir Arthur Evans memorably wrote, he wrote, uh, fire elsewhere so fatal to historic libraries has here been a preservative of these remarkable records. What happened was this. Most of these clay tablets had been preserved because in about 1400 BC, in some catastrophe that we will never fully understand, the palace burned down. Any tablet that wound up being pretty close to the fire, you have an instant kiln. And so you had, in the end, nearly 2,000 tablets that were baked, fired, if you will, to a permanent hardness because of this otherwise catastrophic blaze. This 2013 Tech Nation interview features New York Times journalist Margulit Fox about the riddle of the labyrinth, the quest to crack an ancient code. After a 24-year career, she's now left the Times, but fortunately for us, she's not left writing. Her latest book is just out, The Confidence Men, How Two Prisoners of War Engineered the Most Remarkable Escape in History. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, it seems like everyone is trying to send humans into space. We take a closer look when I speak with New Yorker writer Nicholas Schmidl about test gods, Virgin Galactic, and the making of a modern astronaut. Then, for the 40% of us who report gaining weight since the COVID pandemic began, important excerpts from neuroscientist Dr. Sandra Amitz's 2016 interview on why diets make us fat, the unintended consequences of our obsession with weight loss. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Nicholas Schmidl. Well, Nick, welcome to Tech Nation. Oh, thanks for having me on. Now, with Elon Musk's company SpaceX shuttling NASA astronauts, European Space Agency astronauts, and even astronauts from JAXA, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, all up to the International Space Station, I guess the idea that only NASA and a few international governments can get us into space is so last millennium, so old-fashioned thinking. Yeah, I mean, they they certainly lost that monopoly uh, at this point, uh, 17 years ago, um, when in 2004, the first privately funded um, uh, spaceship company sent two astronauts on over the course of three flights into space in 2004. 
so at this point, like NASA is is in the game. Clearly, NASA is still very much in the game with the with the Mars rover and with these deep space exploration projects. Um, but in terms of like the shuttling to and from space, uh, they they've really kind of given that up to private industry at this point. And let's not forget that that two thousand four uh, effort uh, all started with uh, the X Prize, correct? And and the challenge that was there. That was back, was it ninety six? That was. Yeah, so the X Prize was started in 1996, and the idea was modeled. It was modeled on the the prize that compelled Charles Lindbergh to ultimately fly across the Atlantic. And the idea was that you there was going to be a 10 million dollar prize for the first company to fly two successful space flights within a two week period without uh, killing the astronauts. They said it better than that. They said it more delicately than that, as I recall. I think everyone had to return safely. Well, yeah, but they had to return safely. And there was also a window afterwards, though, in which they like you they couldn't land and then suffer health complications uh, for some window a few days afterwards. And so um, and so this company, uh, Scaled Composites, which is based out in the middle of the um, Mojave Desert in Mojave, California, they built this mini spaceship they called Spaceship One. And it won the X Prize. It, you know, no one thought that was possible, and and they pulled it off, and they they uh, made these two flights in September, late September, early October of two thousand four, and uh, and and you know made history. And Richard Branson paid a million dollars to put a Virgin Galactic sticker on it. Very much. I mean, so you know, Richard Branson's business model for the past several decades has has really been a a, a brand focused approach to business um he you know that, that that's his whole that that's the kind of that's the corporate ethos is is to find cool things to kind of re you know is, is to is to remake an industry and to put the virgin sticker on it and he did this you know, he's done this with with a number of industries uh with with trains with airplanes with <laughs> wedding dresses wines uh at one point uh there was a virgin condom i mean he's really he's really diversified quite a bit <laughs> what uh, <laughs> And and that's that's an oxymoron. Wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so in the case of Spaceship One, exactly. So so he put up money uh, to put the Virgin logo on Spaceship One. And when the spaceship came down, that wasn't enough for him. He had this company that he had registered a few years earlier in the UK called Virgin Galactic. And he went to the aerospace company uh, called Scaled Composites, which had built Spaceship One and said to them, uh, I want you to build me a bigger version of this. I want you to build me a bigger version of Spaceship One and a bigger version of, of this mothership they called the White Knight. And um, I want to have a spaceship that I can carry tourists up. And so this was the, this was the kind of the germ, the genesis of, of Virgin Galactic. So now today we have certainly Richard Branson and Virgin Galactic. We have Elon Musk and SpaceX. And we also have Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin. Now, how do their business models, Elon Musk's and Jeff Bezos, differ from Richard Branson's vision? You know, Virgin Galactic was created in order to shuttle six tourists, um, six six civilians, to to the edge of space, just past the edge of space. On um, the configuration was always very novel, and the configuration was novel because traditionally rockets have been launched vertically. And Virgin Galactic's novelty was in flying up in this with this mothership, at which point at about 45,000 feet high, the mothership would drop the spaceship, uh, which which in Virgin Galactic is called Spaceship Two. 
and the spaceship lights the rocket and it flies horizontally for about three or four seconds and then it enters a very steep uh, ascent, almost a near vertical turn. And it rides that out for the next minute. The rocket burned for a minute. It rides that out and then it would coast to the edge of space. And then it would return. It would, you know, the whole thing, it would take you about 45 minutes to an hour to get up to altitude. And then, you know, you'd be there a little about 10 minutes for the whole kind of space version of the flight. And the difference, so, so Blue Origin is, is there, is, is Virgin Galactic's main competitor. And, Virgin, and, and Blue Origin is also offering a space tourism rocket. Its rocket, however, is a more traditional vertical up, vertical down. However, it uses a similar technology to the one that Elon Musk uses in SpaceX, which is this when you see this phenomenal landing where this essentially this pencil. I mean, imagine landing a pencil on dropping a pencil from your roof and having it land on the eraser. And that is essentially what both Elon Musk and uh, Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin, um, what their SpaceX rockets and Blue Origin rockets are doing that. They are, they are landing vertically and then igniting this sort of retro rocket that helps these rockets, uh, helps their rockets land straight up the same way that they took off. Uh, and so Elon Musk has always been gunning for Mars. That's his big thing is he wants to colonize Mars. Jeff Bezos, not, first he wants to sort of conquer this, this space tourism, this suborbital tourism. And suborbital just means exactly what it says. You're sort of going to the crest of space, but you're not getting into orbit. And so the main, you know, so it's, so it's Bezos against Branson in the suborbital space. And then Musk is, you know, he's, he's, he's looking for deep space. He's looking for, for moon landings. And at this point, watching what Elon Musk has been able to achieve, at this point, you kind of say like, he could almost in some ways do whatever, you know, whatever. He, if, you, if you told me Elon Musk was going to try and do something even more insane than a Mars landing, you, you, how could you bet against the guy? Sure. Right now, Why right? not? I mean, <laughs> wait and see. Right. So they're all in this world, but they're all sort of looking. They all have different ambitions and different goals. You are listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is New Yorker writer Nicholas Schmidl. You might know him from his earlier books, To Live or to Perish Forever, Two Tumultuous Years in Pakistan. He's here today with Test Gods, Virgin Galactic, and the Making of a Modern Astronaut. The challenge of going to space means more than simply leaving the comfort of Earth, uh, but for serial number one, two, and three, and everything leading up, it means the pilots, the test people, all of these people are at absolute risk of losing their lives. And so who are these people? Who are these people that will test such vehicles? Yeah, I mean, this is the question that stirred in me and that compelled me to want to write this book. You know, on October 31st, 2014, there was a, a crash in the desert. And uh, and I remember seeing the news alert, getting a news alert that, that Virgin Galactic um, had had this accident and that their spaceship had crashed and that uh, at least one test pilot, one test pilot was dead. And I remember sort of reading this and, and just wanting everyone to stop for a second and to explain to me, wait a second, there is a company out in the desert north of, north of Los Angeles in which private test pilots are flying a hand-built rocket ship owned by a British billionaire. You know, it was kind of just like crazy and zany. And, and, and I remember looking at a photograph on, um, I remember finding a photograph online that showed the, their test pilots walking out to the, to the spaceship, you know, in some, some kind of pre-dawn morning and just thinking like, who are these guys, right? What, who, 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 
there was something that felt very right stuff, very sort of throwback about it. They were doing something both very new and very kind of very retro in the sense that like we don't we think that we are able in 2000, you know, 2021 and certainly in 2014, but you know, when this was happening, like to be able to kind of work the risk out of our lives. And here were these guys that were, that were strapping into these, 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 into the spaceship. And, and, you know, most of them, many of them had uh, backgrounds in flight test in, in the air force uh, and in NASA. Um, but at Virgin Galactic, the pilot corps, the interesting thing about the pilot corps is that all of them are kind of on their, as one of them said, like, this is our last, this is our last rodeo before we sort of hang up, hang up our spurs. And to be doing something that is so incredibly risky and dangerous when they have nothing left to prove. I mean, one of their astronauts, CJ Sturkow, you know, he flew to space four times with NASA. He was a Marine uh, before that, had several combat tours. You know, he didn't, he doesn't sort of need to do this, but there's just something about that mentality that is driving these test pilots to want, as they say in the test world, to, to expand the envelope and to kind of, you know, to see what is out, what, what is the kind of, what are the mysteries of the aerodynamic realms that they're exploring? And so that, that's what drove me to the project. And then I got out there and I started meeting the engineers and meeting the, you know, all the people that are kind of involved in the various walks of this life. And, and it was just, it, it's just, it's this crazy subculture in the middle of nowhere doing something that uh, really shouldn't be done. And I mean, I remember the first time walking into the hangar in December of 2014, shortly after the crash and walking sort of through the hallway you know, it just looks like a regular hallway. There's, there's, you know, there's, there's laminated signs on the walls as to, you know, what to do if you get chemicals in your eyes and there's, you know, postings about barbecues and things like that. And then you walk through these double doors into this bright sort of stadium lit hangar. And there on the other side of the hangar, remember the spaceship had just crashed. So all the wreckage was off in a separate hangar, but there in this main hangar up on scaffolding was the sort of husk of their new spaceship. And oh man, it looked like something you'd see out of Star Wars. And so that was my introduction to the world. And I just, you know, that, that bright eyed awe was what, you know, in some ways what kind of compelled me to stay with this project for seven years. It wasn't a Hollywood prop. It was a real spaceship. (laughs) It was, it was. (laughs) You opened the book with Mark Stuckey in an experimental aircraft and he's in trouble. Who is Mark Stuckey and how did he get in that kind of trouble? And it's not good trouble. No, it's not good trouble at all. So Mark Stuckey is a legend in the in, in the experimental flight test world. He, he at one point was the president of the Society of Experimental Test Pilots. Um, he was described to me by uh, multiple people as, as the Chuck Yeager of, of, of his generation. And Mark Stuckey he had this incredible backstory where... He, I remember him telling me the first time, him, him recounting watching John Glenn's uh, first orbital flight and watching it on the television. His father comes home that day. He says to his dad, uh, that's what I want to do. I want to become an astronaut. And his father was a conscientious objector. And his father said to him, no, no son of mine. You, you know, all astronauts come from the military world and no son of mine will ever serve. And... Stucky sort of kept his 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 desire quiet for the next few years and then ultimately went into the Marine Corps, spent uh, more than a decade in the Marine Corps, then went over to NASA, then was in the Air Force and kept sort of getting very close to 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 achieving this astronaut, this lifelong astronaut dream, but never quite getting there. 
And then he finally had this opportunity with um, Scaled Composites, which was building the ship for Virgin Galactic, to become a test pilot for Spaceship Two. And so in September of 2011, uh, they were planning to fly that morning uh, a, a glide flight, which is when, you know, because they don't have a wind tunnel out there. So in order to test the spaceship and the aerodynamics of the spaceship, um, you either you either drop the spaceship from the mothership and light the rocket, or you have to drop the spaceship from the mothership and enter a really, really, really steep dive in order to sort of see, you know, honestly to see like that the wings don't fall off. You know, they're checking for flutter, which is this aerodynamic phenomenon in which the flight, in which the, um, uh, the flight surfaces, you know, will vibrate. And so on this particular flight, he comes off, they, the, the ship drops him, he sort of comes off the hooks and he enters this dive, but, but he had over, they had miscalculated the, the, the angle of the dive. And he kind of went into this backflop. And as he went into this backflop, he also started to spin. And so he's in this inverted spin without any engine power to sort of fly out of it and falling towards the desert. And he said to me that he had one thing going through his mind in that he said, after all of this, he said, I'm going to be the guy who has to command a bailout of Richard Branson's spaceship. So he's thinking to himself, not only like, I'm going to have to jump out of this thing in a second and watch Branson's spaceship crash into the desert. Uh, and he miraculously saved the ship. And so it was, again, just like one more notch in his belt as this, this highly accomplished and, and just extremely calm under pressure uh, performer. And yet I, I, I feel for the, the people around him, the, the, the family, uh, you were at his home and he said, oh, would you like to see the video of that? You said, sure, you're a journalist, sure, sign me up, I'll follow you anywhere. And um, his wife comes in the room and she had never seen it before. Yeah, that was the other aspect of, of Stucky's life that I found so intriguing was this very difficult domestic life um, and one that he was surprisingly, um, very forthcoming with me about, which is that, so the woman, Cheryl Agan, who was watching it with him that day was his, is his second wife. Um, he, his, in some ways, his passion for flight was what both kind of drove his first family, you know, his family sort of wrote, you know, was, he sort of took his first family, the momentum of that passion for flight, um, for years, his wife was, you know, his wife was always by his first wife was always by his side. And then eventually she she said enough is enough. Like, you know, he'd just broken his back in a in a, in a flight accident and, you know, the, the marriage was falling apart. And so they divorced in 2008. He married Cheryl uh, shortly after that. And, you know, they've been together for a few years. But like, you know, again, as he said, you know, he said, look, she's my second wife. She thinks the world of me. I try and sort of, you know, I try to not. I try to insulate her from from some of the more risky things. I will tell her enough, but I but not. I don't need to get into all the gory details. So we so he puts this video on that night, and the video is pretty dramatic. Um, as they enter the dive, there are all these alerts beeping. So you know it's doo -doo 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 -doo, and all the alerts essentially mean is that like it's not it's not going well. There should not be alerts going <laughs> off, and. You see, as he flips upside down, you know, the ship is spinning around like a top and, you know, it's whipping past the horizon and it's kind of nauseating to watch. And 
she's getting emotional looking over his shoulder. You know, we're both, I, I'm looking over one shoulder and she's looking over the other shoulder and, and, you know, Stucky's sitting there at the computer and he looks over to her and he says, you know, he says, is this emotional for you? And he didn't mean it to sound short or curt or insensitive. Um, like there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. What, what's, what seems to be the problem with this? What's up um, with you? Yeah. And, and, and you know, she, she was very, you know, she was very cool. And she said, no, it's okay. You know, I want to, let's, let's keep watching. And so he hit play and we've resumed watching it. Um, but uh, yeah, they talk, he, he particularly spoke a lot and speaks a lot about compartmentalization, right? This, this notion, you hear this in the intelligence community, you hear this, you know, like you hear this among elite athletes, you, and anyone who is performing at a high level has to be able to, to kind of tune out the noise. And, and in many cases, the noise is anything other than the particular pursuit that you're engaged in. And whether that's, you know, whether you're Michael Phelps swimming or whether you're Michael Jordan playing basketball or whether you're Mark Stuckey flying a rocket ship, everything else that you're doing besides that activity at that moment is noise. And so that's, that's, that's the kind of, that's the ethos that he, that he brings to it and it kind of brings to the, to the, to the that's the activity that he brings to the cockpit and that's the activity that he kind of you know i think to the detriment of his of his family first family in some ways now there actually is a society of experimental test pilots if you go out there you'll see that they won't participate in an activity that doesn't meet a number of stringent uh standards they really are trying to do this as safely as possible but the truth is, you can't move the frontier forward unless you're willing to take these risks. Yeah, I, I, they, they all know. I mean, this, this, this brings up a really interesting question. Those guys all know what they've signed up for. They have all spent uh, at least two decades in the military doing extraordinarily dangerous things. Um, and they know the risks that they're getting. They know, they know the risk they're assuming. The the question is, does the public understand the risks there? Does, does the question is, does the average potential prospective uh, Virgin Galactic passenger understand fully understand the risk? And and this is this is the challenge for Virgin Galactic, right? They're they're not just trying to to build a ship that can do that can go to space once or twice. They're not trying to prove a concept. They're not trying to build a prototype. They're trying to build a repeatable, safe. Um, space tourism platform, a quote unquote space line. And in order to do that, they need to prove that the ship is reliable and safe. And it's just not because of the nature of what they're doing. And this is, I think, this is, this is the rub between the flight test program and the commercial side of the business. Yeah, it's extraordinarily risky. And even NASA, which, I mean, NASA had a three, you know, there's had a 3% death rate. You know, that's, 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 that's a lot of people. Just a few days ago, Elon Musk is tempering expectations, saying that a lot of people are going to die as he is trying to get people to Mars. And and everyone, you know, there was a little bit of, oh, my gosh, I can't believe he said that. You know, like it's it's such a, you know, is that does everyone is everyone aware of that? And it's like, well, yeah, if, if you're trying to fly to Mars, of course, people like that's like you said, you're pushing the frontier. And as you're pushing the frontier, inevitably, there will be, you know, explorers do not come back. That's the nature of being an explorer. You, 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 you know that you are going to do something no one has ever done. And if you're there to see it and come back, um, you're lucky, phenomenal, but like you're lucky, but, but you're not, it's not, it's not assured. And so, 
So that's that's the uh, in some ways that's the quandary that Virgin Galactic I think is facing at the moment. I've been speaking with New Yorker writer Nicholas Schmidl, the author of Test Gods, Virgin Galactic, and the Making of a Modern Astronaut. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Dr. Sandra Amet, the former editor-in-chief of Nature Neuroscience, on why diets make us fat, the unintended consequences of our obsession with weight loss. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with New Yorker writer Nicholas Schmidl. You might know him from his earlier book, To Live or to Perish Forever, Two Tumultuous Years in Pakistan. He's here today with Test Gods, Virgin Galactic, and the Making of a Modern Astronaut. What I think listeners have to understand is that your book is not about technology per se. It's not about the efforts. It's so much about people and their interactions and how they've interacted with each other to make all of these things happen. And there are a lot of people in the book that you know, in some cases, just a walk-on part, like, you know, Paul Allen funded Spaceship One. It's like, oh yeah, Paul Allen. I know who Paul Allen is. Um, And we've mentioned scaled composites a number of times. That's Bert Rutan's company. Uh, remind us, how do we know Bert Rutan? Well, you know, speaking of legends, I mean, Bert Rutan is um, Bert Rutan is is arguably the most innovative aerospace designer of the past thirty years, forty years. I mean, he is he has more airplanes on display in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum than anyone else. And Bert Rutan is the individual who designed Spaceship One uh, and, and whose company, Scaled Composites, won the X Prize in 2004. Bert Rutan, you know, he built the first airplane to fly around the world without refueling. And he builds these crazy looking airplanes that don't look like anything you've ever seen before. There's nothing, you know, to be innovative in this world. Um, 
you need to take chances. And so, you know, Berber Tam's vehicles, you know, they look, they look like, they look like insects. They look like, I mean, Spaceship Two and Spaceship One before it folds in half. I mean, the whole concept of, you know, his, his, his big concern, Bert's big concern was once you get up with the rock, once you, once you power your way up through the atmosphere and break through the atmosphere and get to space, great. <laughs> but then you have to get down. And getting down without burning up uh, as you're, you know, as you're accelerating and falling and accelerating and the air is getting thicker and it's putting all this insane amount of, 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 of um, force and pressure on the vehicle without the vehicle breaking up. How do you do that? And so Burger Tan came up with this idea called the feather in which the tail booms would rotate up. And I mean, it's crazy. It looks like a, it looks like an airplane that turns into a drawbridge in the middle, in the middle of the edge of space. And so Burger Tan built spaceship one like that, built spaceship two. And, um, you know, so he is a character who I thought was important because, it's his idea that sort of drives all of this forward. And, you know, and I had an, I had an opportunity a few years ago to go and spend a few days with Bert Rattan at his retirement home in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho with uh, Mark Stuckey. And, you know, I remember thinking at the time that this, you know, this was like, this was akin to going to the sort of Dagobah swamp with Luke Skywalker to visit Yoda. I mean, <laughs> th- th- these, you know, these are guys are, these guys are legends. And so, and I just went there and sat there and listened to them tell stories for, for a couple of days. And, you know, we went and saw first man together. And I remember thinking we were sitting there in the film, we were sitting there in the cinema and, um, and you know, Bert, Bert kept talking throughout the movie. And I was thinking, you know, there are probably a lot of people in this movie theater right now that are thinking, who's the dude behind me that won't stop talking. And I thought, well, if they only knew, you know, this is clearly a, you know, this is a, this is a, this is a space audience if they're in here watching First Man. If they only knew that the man who does, built the first privately built spaceship is sitting on one side of me and the man who's most likely to become the next astronaut is sitting on the other side of me, they would probably let them go ahead and have their sort of their mid-movie banter. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it was a, it was a very uh, unique and very cool experience. Totally unique, totally unique experience. You can imagine that we have these individuals who, uh, who, who have driven all of this activity and that, you know, when they're a success, they might be, uh, you know, drawn to, you know, large shouts and, uh, you know, fist pumping and that type of thing. But Richard Branson was brought to tears. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was that was so in December of 2018, Virgin Galactic flew finally. Uh, its first space mission, um, and, and and Mark Stuckey was the pilot that day, and you know this is something, this was something that Richard Branson had been wanting to do for a very very long time. I mean think think that in, you know Bert was Bert Rattan knowing that he was only building a prototype was able to build Spaceship One in a couple of years, fly it to space three times in two thousand four, and then said okay you know I'm done with that like. We almost, you know, he he would say to me later that we were good, but we were damn lucky, and uh, and so he, you know, he kind of put put Spaceship One into retirement, um, dedicated it to the Air and Space Museum, and and so I think Branson thought that well, if Bert did that with Spaceship One, you know, now he has more money for me, we should be able to turn Spaceship Two around uh, and get this, you know, get this airborne in a few years, and it's been. It had been a long, it had been, it had been 14 years. 
And so, and I was standing a few feet away from Branson and they were calling out the elevation as Spaceship Two was was climbing into space. 264,000 feet was the magic number. You know, there's this, there's this curious uh, uh, kind of wrinkle in the space world where the United States Air Force recognizes the boundary of space at 50 kilometers. And the rest of the world recognizes the boundary of space at 62 kilometers. And <laughs> so Virgin Galactic is using the Air Force's definition of space for the moment until they, until they have a stronger motor, until they have a slightly lighter ship, and that which they will apparently be gunning for the 62-kilometer uh, zone. But so, so 264,000 feet is, is 50 kilometers. And the moment that they announced on the... Um, uh, there was a there was an engineer vice there was an engineer up at the uh, microphone at the um, up on a stage that was calling out the elevation and when he or the altitude and when he called out the altitude of two hundred sixty four thousand feet yeah you know Branson just sort of cratered you know he fell over you know he he bent over and he put his hands on his knees and he was crying and you know there you know Branson is a really interesting figure in the sense that he is he is he is a showman. Um, He's a marketing guy. He's not a nuts and bolts guy, but he is a passionate guy. And this is something he had been wanting for a long, long time. And, and you know, the emotions that day were very real. And it was, it was just for me, having spent the past four years embedded with the company, you know, I, I wanted to see them succeed. Not, not really because I, you know, not because I wanted them to win the space, the new space race, or because, you know, I cared about their bottom line, or I wanted Richard Branson to become more rich or anything. But in some ways, because those four years that I spent with them, cl close to people for whom hope, like they're, they were doing something that they should not have been able to do and against all odds. And on that day, you know, they pulled it off and, you know, it was, it was an incredible thing to see, an incredible thing to witness. And I felt and, and, you know, feel, feel really fortunate and lucky to have been able to, to, to witness that with all of them. And, and, you know, I went back that night with, uh, and, and was drinking whiskey back with Mark Stuckey and we, <laughs> we were drinking whiskey back at his house that evening and just, uh, Cheryl, his, his, his wife and, and Stuckey and I, and he said, um, I have this bottle of whiskey. He said that I, uh, that I've been saving for, for a moment, for <laughs> just this moment for a special occasion. And so he goes and he gets out these shot glasses. He had, he had flown at some of the top secret Area 51 uh, Tonopah test sites uh, in the Nevada desert. And he brings out these shot glasses with all of these classified squadrons on them. And he says, we'll drink it out of these. But he, of course, he won't talk about any of them. <laughs> we both, so he pours his glass. And I said to him, I don't really drink whiskey. I said, so, you know, he said, well, how do you want it? Do you want it neat? Do you want it well, whatever? And I said, whatever you do. He said, all right, we'll take it. We'll drink a shit. We'll drink it. We'll have a shot. So he pours it in these shot glasses and, you know, I was thinking like I'm back in college, we're taking shots of whiskey. And so I take this shot of whiskey and he looks at me, he goes, whoa. And he's like, <laughs> he's sort of taken aback. And it wasn't until I got back to my hotel that night that I looked it up on the, on, I looked up the bottle of whiskey that we'd just been drinking and it was selling on the website. It was selling on the web for like $600 a bottle. And I immediately messaged him and I said, I am so sorry. That was so gauche of me. <laughs> I was thoroughly embarrassed. <laughs> But, um, but you know, that was, that was the, uh, you know, that was, that was, that was that kind of the, the relationship that we had, which was a, you know, and have, which is a really special one, I think. 
Well, I'll knock it up to when with test pilots, act like test pilots. <laughs> you were taken in, taken into the whole ethos, taken into the whole ethos. Um, now, I have to also laugh because uh, it's not just wealthy people who can, you know, uh, invest in space. Uh, Virgin Galactic is actually publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, the trading symbols SPCE, uh, lacking the A, it's o- it's almost space. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, almost ten days ago at this recording, Richard Branson sold about two percent of Virgin Galactic, about one hundred and fifty million dollars. He probably had to pay off his credit cards. You could imagine, <laughs> you know, he's just operating at different different scales. But you can o- own a piece of this as an example, and I'm sure there will be many other investments in in the future. How close are they to bringing uh, tourists into space? Well, this is the this is this is this is the big question right now. They so so in December of 2018 on this this you know there was this momentous flight and then they did it again in February of 2019 and they flew to space again in February of 2019 and there was a great deal of optimism internal optimism that they had really turned the corner and they were going to they were going to do this like they were going to make a company out of this they were talking about flying richard branson on you know richard branson has always said that after the ship is is declared safe that he's going to be the first customer and they were talking about flying richard branson up on what would be what would have been the 50th anniversary of the apollo landing that summer of 2019 but when they landed in, in, after that second space flight and they wheeled the spaceship into the hangar, they discovered that one of the bonds had come undone. And, you know, it's important to note that this is not a ship put together with sheet metal in which the, you know, it's like, you know, held together with, with, with rivets. I mean, this is, it's made out of carbon fiber. It's essentially, it's, it's like paper mache in some ways. Right. And there's this glue that's holding these, these, these um, panels together and the glue came undone. And it's a bad, that's like on a, on a good, bad scale, it's very bad. And they saw that there was this, this, these gaps on the trailing edge of the wing. And they went, they went down, they grounded the ship and they went down for extensive repairs. That was in February of 2019. They have not flown to space since. So it's been more than two years. They attempted a space flight in December of 2020 that they aborted in midair. They planned to redo that um, flight in February of 2021, a couple months ago, that they postponed on the eve of the flight because they had not, they realized that they had not yet addressed, or they didn't feel confident that they had addressed the problem that caused the abort and the flight in December of 2020. And so there's a, you know, you, you mentioned Richard Branson selling off $150 million worth of shares. There's, there's a bit of a question right now as to like, how serious the problem is that they discovered uh, after that second space flight and what is going on in sort of organizationally. I, I, you know, I had four years embedded in the company um, that, you know, I was there from, from late 14 until uh, the kind of the summer of, of 18 and then had another six or seven months of reporting that I was able to do kind of half, you know, one foot in one foot out, but um, I'm no longer kind of on the inside. And so 
I am as curious as the next person as to kind of what exactly is happening inside the company. But but the fact that they haven't had any flights in the past two years uh, does sort of chip away at your confidence that they are that this is this is imminent. Um, and so, uh, you know, they still need to prove they still need to prove to themselves and to the wider world that this is safe. And then they can start sort of thinking about putting passengers on there. But this is the challenge of what they are doing compared to what SpaceX or Blue Origin is doing, where SpaceX and Blue Origin can test their rockets. Their, their, you know, their rockets are, they can automate their rockets to fly on their own. So they can test them without people in them to make sure they're safe before they put people on there. Virgin Galactic, like the only way you can test that rocket is by having Mark Stuckey or having one of the other test pilots there at the controls, which, you know, as far as a subject for writing a book about the human interest, the, the sacrifice, the, 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 all of those kind of, all of that adventurism is, uh, I mean, that's, that's the kind of material that one looks for when you're trying to figure out if this is going to be a, a project that you want to spend the next seven years working on. Uh, but if you're trying to build a business, it does bring up a, uh, it does raise some, some serious safety questions. Well, in engineering, there's a difference between being able to just patch something or having the fault itself bring back that you have to redesign or you have to understand more about what you're doing and how you're doing it. And that just leads to a whole lot more time. And there's no prediction on how long that might take. So uh, they're doing it all in public. <laughs> so, right, right. And I'd just like to remind you that uh, John Glenn was... 77 years old when he went up the last time into space. So you could still be in your lifetime, a long lifetime ahead, the first journalist to go up on, on, <laughs> on Virgin Galactic. I'm holding out for you, Nick. <laughs> All right. Thanks. 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 Nick, thanks so much for joining me. I hope you'll come back. See us again. Thanks for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. My guest today is Nicholas Schmidl. His book is Test Gods, Virgin Galactic, and the Making of a Modern Astronaut. It's published by Henry Holt. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. In April of 2021, the American Psychological Association published its annual Stress in America report. It tells us that 40% of Americans have gained undesired weight since the COVID-19 pandemic began. Thinking about going on a diet? Take heed. In 2016, I spoke with neuroscientist Dr. Sandra Amet, the former editor-in-chief of Nature Neuroscience and the author of Why Diets Make Us Fat, The Unintended Consequences of Our Obsession with Weight Loss. It's actually pretty hard to lose a lot of weight and keep it off. This is what used to be called the, the weight set point, and scientists now call it the defended weight range to emphasize that it's, in fact, a range of about 10 or 15 pounds for most people, not an exact weight. And that is the weight that your brain thinks is right for you. Your brain almost certainly did not consult your mother or your doctor in deciding what that weight range should be, and they may not agree. But uh, for most of us, your brain gets the final say. We don't have perfect control over our weight. 
you know, you can imagine if you walked into the doctor's office and the doctor said, you got to drop 20 points of blood sugar. <laughs> yeah. You would hear that differently than you would hear, you got to drop 20 pounds. But in fact, they are both physiologically regulated quite strongly. And if you get outside of the range of the defended weight range that your brain thinks is right for you, what happens is that uh, you get a lot of physiological responses that are engineered to drive your weight back to normal. And that's true on both ends, actually. Uh, if you get above your defended weight range, your metabolism will increase, your body will burn more energy, you will become less hungry, you will find food less rewarding and become less motivated to seek it out. If you go below your defended weight range, you will become more hungry, more motivated to find food, which will be more rewarding to eat, and your body will burn less energy until you have gotten back into the defended weight range. Unfortunately, that's, that response is not symmetrical. So the defenses against gaining weight are much less persistent and much weaker than the defenses against losing weight. That makes total sense from an evolutionary standpoint because we've had, as a species, 200,000 years of being at risk of starving to death and about maybe 50 or 100 years of being at risk, most of us, of eating enough to become really overweight. So, you know, our, our bodies have their defenses in place against what has been the persistent threat. How do you know if you're at the top or the bottom of your defended weight range? You can make guesses about that, but there's no way to know for sure. Uh, in general, people who have a healthy lifestyle, who exercise every day and eat a lot of vegetables and don't put themselves under huge amounts of stress are more likely to be sitting toward the low end of the range and people who are in the opposite condition tend more li more likely to be sitting at the top of the range. You can even be outside of your range. I mean, there are people who spend months or years at a time eating when they're not hungry so often that they are actually maintaining a weight that's above their defended range. Uh, that's a risky thing to do because what happens is that that's one of the causes of the defended range creeping up over time with age. There are people who diet successfully and keep themselves below their defended range. Uh, you can you can probably tell if you're there because you are likely to be hungry a lot and you're likely also to be cold a lot because uh, that reduction in your body burning energy comes at the cost of the heat that gets released to keep you warm. And when, and if you're under long enough, will your defended weight range come down? Doesn't appear to be the case. I am so mad. I know. It's totally unfair. 
<laughs> right? So it can creep up but not so go it down. Can cre- yeah, it can oh, creep up, man. and it, as far as anybody can tell, it doesn't go down. So there was a big study that came out in uh, April this year where uh, scientists at NIH looked at contestants on The Biggest Loser six years after they had lost over 100 pounds each. And by the time six years had passed, they had regained about 70% of the weight that they had lost. And they were still experiencing all of these symptoms of being below their defended weight range. And in particular, they were burning on average 700 calories less per day than would be calculated for the weight that they actually were. So their body was just in, it was set on getting back to that weight range. Yep. And there was only one of the 11 contestants that they looked at who had not regained the weight and of all of them, she had the worst metabolic suppression. Her her body was burning even less energy than the rest of them. So, yeah, it was the, the reduction in the energy that they were burning was actually worse six years later than it had been right after they lost the weight. So not only had their bodies not gotten used to the idea of being below but they were fighting against it even harder than they had been six years earlier. So one of the things that predictably happens with chronic dieters is that they they sort of disconnect from their bodies. They start thinking that, you know, their their bodies are not the important thing. They're just kind of to be tolerated and dragged around and ignored as much as possible. And then when you go back and say, actually, I would really like to uh, to work with the natural weight regulation system by eating when I'm hungry, your body says, hunger? I haven't experienced hunger since 1998. <laughs> yeah, now what? Which is not true, but you haven't noticed. Uh, it take, so it doesn't go away. It doesn't, yeah. There, There is nobody who actually doesn't have hunger, but there are people who don't understand what the signs of hunger are and how to detect them. The good news is that that is reversible. If you systematically pay attention over a period of time to how your body feels under various conditions, you can reacquaint yourself with uh, your hunger and fullness signals. And people, I said, you know, people who get one body sensation tend to get all of them. One of the important applications of that principle is that people who are bad at detecting when they're hungry are almost uniformly also bad at detecting when they're full. So if you disable your hunger system, what you have done accidentally is also disable the the protection, the guardrail that keeps you from eating way more than your body actually wants. And so that's part of the reason that dieting is actually associated statistically with weight gain in the long term, which is a, a systematic finding of 
more than a dozen studies that if you if you take a group of people who are at the same weight with the same eating and exercise habits at the beginning and you follow them for years, up to 15 years in some studies, you will find that on average the people who were dieting when the study began weigh more than the people who were not dieting. You also talk about something that I'd never heard about before called taste satiety in that. Will you explain that? So taste satiety is the process of your tongue getting used to a new taste. And basically it happens a lot faster than most of us would guess. So the first bite of something always tastes the best. And the second bite is still pretty darn good. And the third bite is not quite as good. And by about the fifth bite, typically you can detect a real difference if you're paying attention in how good something tastes. So if your aim is to maximize the amount of pleasure that you get from eating the amount of food that your body needs, then paying attention to when you're really experiencing the pleasure of the food will lead most of us to realizing that you don't actually need a whole piece of cake to get most of the joy that you were going to get from the piece of cake. Hence all those little petty fours you see in Europe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Know, the Europeans are better at this than we are. <laughs> yeah. Tapas bars speak for themselves. We, that sounds really great. Neuroscientist Dr. Sandra Emmett is the author of the 2016 book, Why Diets Make Us Fat, The Unintended Consequences of Our Obsession with Weight Loss. Her viral TED Talk, Why Dieting Doesn't Usually Work, has received over 4.5 million views. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.